Section 10 of Micrographia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. Micrographia by Robert Hooke. Observation 6 of Small Glass Canes. Part 2. This, therefore, be and thus explained, there will be diverse phenomena explicable thereby, as the rising of liquors in a filter, the rising of spirit of wine, oil, melted tallow, etc., in the wick of a lamp, though made of small wire, threads of asbestos, strings of glass, or the like, the rising of liquors in a sponge, piece of bread, sand, etc., perhaps also the ascending of the sap in trees and plants, through their small and some of them imperceptible pores, of which I have said more on another occasion, at least the passing of it out of the earth into their roots. And indeed, upon the consideration of this principle, multitudes of other uses of it occur to me, which I have not yet so well examined and digested as to propound for axioms, but only as queries and conjectures which may serve as hints towards some further discoveries. As first, upon the consideration of the congruity and incongruity of bodies as to touch, I found also the like congruity and incongruity, if I may so speak, as to the transmitting of the rates of light. For, as in this regard, water, not now to mention other liquors, seems nearer of affinity to glass than air, and air than quicksilver, whence an oblique ray out of glass will pass into water with very little refraction from the perpendicular, but none out of glass into air except a direct, will pass without a very great refraction from the perpendicular, nay, any oblique ray under 30 degrees will not be admitted into the air at all, and quicksilver will neither admit oblique or direct, but reflects all, seeming, as to the transmitting of the rays of light, to be of a quite differing constitution from that of air, water, glass, etc., and to resemble most those opacous and strong reflecting bodies of metals, so also as to the property of cohesion or congruity, water seems to keep the same order, being more congruous to glass than air, and air than quicksilver. A second thing, which was hinted to me by the consideration of the included fluid's globular form caused by the protrusion of the ambient heterogeneous fluid was whether the phenomena of gravity might not by this means be explained by supposing the globe of earth, water and air to be included with a fluid heterogeneous to all and each of them, so subtle as not only to be everywhere interspersed through the air, or rather the air through it, but to pervade the bodies of glass, and even the closest metals, by which means it may endeavour to detrude all earthly bodies as far from it as it can, and partly thereby, and partly by other of its properties, may move them towards the centre of the earth. Now that there is some such fluid, I could produce many experiments and reasons that do seem to prove it, but because it would ask some time and room to set them down and explain them, and to consider and answer all the objections, many whereof I foresee, that may be alleged against it, I shall at present proceed to other queries, containing myself to have here only given a hint of what I may say more elsewhere.
A third query then was whether the heterogeneity of the ambient fluid may not be accounted a secondary cause of the roundness or globular form of the greater bodies of the world, such as are those of the sun, stars and planets, the substance of each of which seems altogether heterogeneous to the circumambient fluid ether, and of this I shall say more in the observation of the moon. A fourth was whether the globular form of the smaller parcels of matter here upon the earth, as that of fruits, pebbles, or flints, etc., which seem to have been a liquor at first, may not be caused by the heterogeneous ambient fluid, for thus we see that melted glass will be naturally formed into a round figure. So likewise any small parcel of any fusible body, if it be perfectly enclosed by the air, will be driven into a globular form, and, when cold, will be found a solid ball. This is plainly enough manifested to us by their way of making shot with the drops of lead, which being a very pretty curiosity, and known but very few, and having the liberty of publishing it granted to me by that eminent virtuoso Sir Robert Moray, who brought in this account of it to the Royal Society, I have here transcribed and inserted to make small shot of different sizes, communicated by His Highness P.R. Take lead out of the pig, what quantity you please, melt it down, stir and clear it with an iron ladle, gathering together the blackish parts that swim at top like scrum, and when you see the color of the clear lead to be greenish, but no sooner, strew upon it ore pigmentum powdered according to the quantity of lead, about as much as will lie upon a half-crown piece, will serve for eighteen or twenty pound weight of some sorts of lead. Others will require more or less. After the ore pigmentum is put in, stir the lead well, and the ore pigmentum will flame. When the flame is over, take out some of the lead in a ladle, having a lip or notch in the brim for convenient pouring out of the lead, and being well warmed amongst the melted lead, and with a stick, make some single drops of lead trickle out of the ladle into water in a glass, which, if they fall to be round and without tails, there is ore pigmentum enough to put in it, and the temper of the heat is right, otherwise put in more. Then lay two bars of iron, or some more proper iron tool made on purpose, upon a pail of water, and place upon them a round plate of copper, of the size and figure of an ordinary large pewter or silver trencher, the hollow whereof is to be about three inches over, the bottom lower than the brims about half an inch, pierced with thirty, forty or more small holes, the smaller the holes are, the smaller the shot will be, and the brim is to be thicker than the bottom, to conserve the heat the better. The bottom of the trencher, being some four inches distant from the water in the pail, lay upon it some burning coals, to keep the lead melted upon it. Then, with a hot ladle, take lead off the pot, where it stands melted, and pour it softly upon the burning coals over the bottom of the trencher, and it will immediately run through the holes into the water in small round drops. Thus pour on new lead as fast as it runs through the trencher, till all be done, blowing now and then the coals with hand bellows. When the lead in the trencher cools so as to stop from running, 
while one pours on the lead, another must, with another ladle, thrust it four or five inches under water in the pail, catch from time to time some of the shot as it drops down to see the size of it, and whether there be any fault in it. The greatest care is to keep the lead upon the trencher in the right degree of heat. If it be too cool, it will not run through the trencher, though it stand melted up on it. And this is to be helped by blowing the coals a little, or pouring on new lead that is hotter. But the cooler the lead, the larger the shot, and the hotter the smaller. When it is too hot, the drops will crack and fly. Then you must stop pouring on new lead and let it cool. And so long as you observe the right temper of the heat, the lead will constantly drop into very round shot, without so much as one with a tail, in many pounds. When all is done, take your shot out of the pail of water and put it in a frying pan over the fire to dry them, which must be done warily, still shaking them that they melt not. And when they are dry, you may separate the small from the great in pearl sieves made of copper or latin, let into one another into as many sizes as you please. But if you would have your shot larger than the trencher makes them, you may do it with a stick, making them trickle out of the ladle, as hath been said. If the trencher be but touched a very little, when the lead stops from going through it, and be not too cool, it will drop again, but it better not touch it at all. At the melting of the lead, take care that there be no kind of oil, grease, or the like upon the pots, or ladles, or trencher. The chief cause of this globular figure of the shot seems to be the ori pigmentum. For as soon as it is put in among the melted lead, it loses its shining brightness, contracting instantly a grayish film or skin upon it, when you scum it to make it clean with a ladle, so that when the air comes at the falling drop of the melted lead, that skin constricts them everywhere equally. But upon what account and whether this be the true case, is left to further disquisition. Much after the same manner, when the air is exceeding cold through which it passes, do we find the drops of rain falling from the clouds congealed into round hailstones by the freezing ambient, to which may be added the other known experiment, that if you gently let fall a drop of water upon small sand or dust, you shall find, as it were, an artificial round stone quickly generated. I cannot upon this occasion omit the mentioning of the strange kind of grain, which I have observed in a stone brought from Kettering in Northamptonshire, and therefore called by masons Kettering Stone, of which see the description, which brings into my mind what I long since observed in the fiery sparks that are struck out of a steel. For having a great desire to see what was left behind after the spark was gone out, I purposely struck fire over a very white piece of paper, and observing diligently where some conspicuous sparks went out, I found a very little black spot no bigger than the point of a pin, which through a microscope appeared to be a perfectly round ball, looking much like a polished ball of steel, insomuch that I was able to see the image of the window reflected from it. I cannot here stay, having done it more fully in another place, to examine the particular reasons of it, but shall only hint that I imagine it to be some small parcel of the steel which by the violence of the motion of the stroke, most of which seems to be impressed upon those small parcels, is made so glowing hot that it is melted into a vitrum, 
which by the ambient air is thrust into the form of a ball. A fifth thing which I thought worth examination was whether the motion of all kind of springs might not be reduced to the principle whereby the included heterogeneous fluid seems to be moved, or to that whereby two solids, as marbles or the like, are thrust and kept together by the ambient fluid. A sixth thing was whether the rising and ebullition of the water out of springs and fountains, which lie much higher from the centre of the earth than the superficies of the sea, from whence it seems to be derived, may not be explicated by the rising of water in smaller pipe. For the sea water, being strained through the pores or crannies of the earth, is, as it were, included in little pipes, where the pressure of the air has not so great a power to resist its rising. But examining this way, and finding in it several difficulties almost irremovable, I thought upon a way that would much more naturally and conceivably explain it, which was by this following experiment. I took a glass tube of the form of that described in the sixth figure, and choosing two heterogeneous fluids, such as water and oil, I poured in as much water as filled up the pipes as high as AB, then putting in some oil into the tube AC, I depressed the superficies A of the water to F, and B I raised to G, which was not so high perpendicularly as the superficies of the oil F by the space FI, wherefore the proportion of the gravity of these two liquors was as GH to FE. This experiment I tried with several other liquors, and particularly with fresh water and salt, which I made by dissolving salt in warm water, which too, though, they are nothing heterogeneous. Yet, before they would perfectly mix one with another, I made trial of the experiment. Nay, letting the tube wherein, I tried the experiment remain for many days. I observed them not to mix, but the superficies of the fresh was rather more than less elevated above that of the salt. Now the proportion of the gravity of sea water to that of river water, according to Stevinus and Varenius, and as I have since found pretty true by making trial myself, is as 46 to 45. That is, 46 ounces of the salt water will take up no more room than 45 of the fresh, or reciprocally, 45 pints of salt water weigh as much as 46 of fresh. But I found the proportion of brine to fresh water to be near 13 to 12. Supposing, therefore, GHM to represent the sea, and FI the height of the mountain above the superficies of the sea. FM, a cavern in the earth beginning at the bottom of the sea and terminated at the top of the mountain. LM, the sand at the bottom, through which the water is as it were strained, so as that the fresher parts are only permitted to transude and the saline kept back. If, therefore, the proportion of GM to FM be as 45 to 46, then may the cylinder of salt water GM make the cylinder of fresh water to rise as high as E, and to run over at N. I cannot here stand to examine or confute their opinion, who make the depth of the sea below its superficies to be no more perpendicularly measured than the height of the mountains above it. It is enough for me to say there is no one of those that have asserted it have experimentally known the perpendicular of either, nor shall I here determine whether there may not be 
many other causes of separation of the fresh water from the salt, as perhaps some parts of the earth through which it is to pass may contain salt, that mixing and uniting with sea salt may precipitate it, much after the same manner as the alkalizate and acid salts mix and precipitate each other in the preparation of tartarum vitriolatum. I know not also whether the exceeding cold that must necessarily be at the bottom of the water may not help towards this separation, for we find that warm water is able to dissolve and contain more salt than the same cold insomuch that brines strongly impregnated by heat, if let cool, do suffer much of their salt to subside and crystallize about the bottom and sides. I know not also whether the exceeding pressure of the parts of the water, one against another, may not keep the salt from descending to the very bottom, as finding little or no room to insert itself between those parts protruded so violently together, or else squeeze it upwards into the superior parts of the sea, where it may more easily obtain room for itself amongst the parts of the water by reason that there is more heat and less pressure. To this opinion I was somewhat the more induced by the relations I have met with in geographical writers of drawing fresh water from the bottom of the sea, which is salt above. I cannot now stand to examine whether this natural perpetual motion may not artificially be imitated, nor can I stand to answer the objections which may be made against this my supposition. As first, how it come to pass that there are sometimes salt springs much higher than the superficies of the water, and secondly, why springs do not run faster and slower according to the varying height made of the cylinder of sea water by the ebbing and flowing of the sea. As to the first, in short, I say, the fresh water may receive again a saline tincture near the superficies of the earth by passing through some salt mines or else many of the saline parts of the sea may be kept back, though not all. And as to the second, the same spring may be fed and supplied by diverse caverns coming from very far distant parts of the sea, so as that it may in one place be high, in another low water, and so by that means the spring may be equally supplied at all times, or else the cavern may be so straight and narrow that the water not having so ready and free passage through it cannot upon so short and quick mutations of pressure to be able to produce any sensible effect at such a distance. Besides that, to confirm this hypothesis, there are many examples found in natural historians of springs that do ebb and flow like the sea, as particularly those recorded by the learned Camden, and after him by speed, to be found in this island, one of which they relate to be on the top of a mountain, by the small village Kilken, in Flintshire. Maris emulus, quistatis temporibus, suos evomit, et resorbet aquas, which at certain times riseth and falleth after the manner of the sea. A second in Carmarthenshire, near Carmarthen, at a place called Cantresbishan, qui ut scribit Geraldus, naturali die bis undis deficiens et totius exuberans, marinas imitatur instabilitates, that twice in four and twenty hours, ebbing and flowing, resembleth the unstable motions of the sea, the phenomena of which two may be easily made out by supposing the cavern by which they are fed 
to arise from the bottom of the next sea. A third is a well upon the river Ogmore in Glamorganshire, and near unto Newton, of which Camden relates himself to be certified by a letter from a learned friend of his that observed it, Fons Abest Hink, etc. The letter is a little too long to be inserted, but the substance is this, that this well ebbs and flows quite contrary to the flowing and ebbing of the sea in those parts, for it is almost empty at full sea, but full at low water. This may happen from the channel by which it is supplied, which may come from the bottom of the sea, very remote from those parts, and where the tides are much differing from those of the approximate shores. A fourth lies in Westmoreland, near the river Leder, qui in star Euripisepius indie reciprocantibus undis fluit et refluit, which ebbs and flows many times a day. This may proceed from its being supplied from many channels, coming from several parts of the sea, lying sufficiently distance asunder to have the times of high water differing enough one from the other, so as that whensoever it shall be high water over any of those places where these channels begin, it shall likewise be so in the well. But this is but a supposition. A seventh query was whether the dissolution or mixing of several bodies, whether fluid or solid, with saline or other liquors, might not partly be attributed to this principle of the congruity of those bodies and their dissolvents, as of salt in water, metals in several menstruums, unctuous gums in oils, the mixing of wine and water, etc., and whether precipitation be not partly made from the same principle of incongruity. I say partly because there are in some dissolutions some other causes concurrent. I shall lastly make a much more seemingly strange and unlikely query, and that is whether this principle, well examined and explained, may not be found a coefficient in the most considerable operations of nature, as in those of heat and light, consequently of rarefraction and condensation, hardness and fluidness, perspicuity and opaqueness, refractions and colors, and etc. Nay, I know not whether there may be many things done in nature in which this may not be said to have a finger. This I have in some other passages of this treatise further inquired into and shown that as well light as heat may be caused by corrosion, which is applicable to congruity, and consequently all the rest will be but subsequence. In the meantime, I would not willingly be guilty of that error, which the thrice noble and learned Verulam justly takes notice of, as such, and calls Philosophiae genus empiricum quodin paucorum experimentorum angustiis et obscuritate fundatum est. For I neither conclude from one single experiment, nor are the experiments I make use of all made up on one subject, nor rest I any experiment to make it quadrare with any preconceived notion. But on the contrary, I endeavor to be conversant in diverse kinds of experiments, and all and every one of those trials I make the standards or touchstones by which I try all my former notions, whether they hold out in weight and measure and touch and etc. For as that body is no other than a counterfeit gold, 
which wants any one of the properties of gold, such as are the malleableness, weight, color, fixedness in the fire, indissolubleness in aqua fortis, and the like, though it has all the other, so will all those notions be found to be false and deceitful, that will not undergo all the trials and tests made of them by experiments, and therefore such as will not come up to the desired apex of perfection, I rather wholly reject and take new, than by piecing and patching endeavor to retain the old, as knowing such things at best to be but lame and imperfect. And this course I learned from nature, whom we find neglectful of the old body, and suffering is the case and infirmities to remain without repair, and altogether solicitous and careful of perpetuating the species by new individuals. And it is certainly the most likely way to erect a glorious structure and temple to nature, such as she will be found by any zealous votary to reside in, to begin to build anew upon a sure foundation of experiments. But to digress no further from the consideration of the phenomena more immediately explicable by this experiment, we shall proceed to show that, as to the rising of water in a filter, the reason of it will be manifest to him that does take notice, that a filter is constituted of a great number of small long solid bodies which lie so close together that the air in its getting in between them doth lose of its pressure that it has against the fluid without them, by which means the water or liquor, not finding so strong a resistance between them, as is able to counterbalance the pressure on its superfaces without, is raised upward till it meet with the pressure of the air which is able to hinder it and as to the rising of oil, melted tallow, spirit of wine, etc., in the wick of a candle or lamp, it is evident that it differs in nothing from the former, save only in this, that in a filter the liquor descends and runs away by another part, and in the wick the liquor is dispersed and carried away by the flame something that is ascribable to the heat, for that it may rarefy the more volatile and spirituous parts of those combustible liquors, and so being made lighter than the air, it may be protruded upwards by that more ponderous fluid body in the form of vapours. But this can be ascribed to the ascension of but a very little, and most likely of that, only which ascends without a week, as for the rising of it in a sponge, bread, cotton, etc., above the superfaces of the subjacent liquor, what has been said about the filter, if considered, will easily suggest a reason, considering that all these bodies abound with small holes or pores. From this same principle also, vis-à-vis -vis the unequal pressure of the air against the unequal superfaces of the water, precedes the cause of the accession or incursion of any floating body against the sides of the containing vessel, or the appropinquation of two floating bodies, as bubbles, corks, sticks, straws, etc., one towards another. As, for instance, Take a glass jar, such as AB, in the seventh figure, and filling it pretty near to the top with water, throw into it a small round piece of cork, as C, and plunge it all over in water, that it be wet, so as that the water may rise up by the sides of it, then placing it anywhere upon the superfaces about an inch 
or one inch and a quarter from any side, and you shall perceive it by degrees to make perpendicularly toward the nearest part of the side, and the nearer it approaches, the faster to be moved, the reason of which phenomena will be found no other than this, that the air has a greater pressure against the middle of the superficies than it has against those parts that approach nearer and are contiguous to the sides. Now that the pressure is greater, may, as I showed before in the explication of the third figure, be evinced from the flatting of the water in the middle, which arises from the gravity of the under fluid. For since, as I showed before, if there were no gravity in the under fluid, or that it were equal to that of the upper, the terminating surface would be spherical, and since it is the additional pressure of the gravity of water that makes it so flat, it follows that the pressure upon the middle must be greater than towards the sides, hence the ball having a stronger pressure against that side of it which respects the middle of superficies than against that which respects the approximate side must necessarily move towards that part from whence it finds least resistance and so be accelerated as the resistance decrease. Hence, the more the water is raised under that part of its way, it is passing above the middle, the faster it is moved, and therefore you will find it to move faster in E than D and in D than C neither could I find the floating substance to be moved at all until it were placed upon some part of the superficies that was sensibly elevated above the height of the middle part. Now that this may be the true cause, you may try with a blown bladder and an exactly round ball upon a very smooth side of some pliable body, as horn or quicksilver. For if the ball be placed under a part of the bladder which is upon one side of the middle of its pressure, and you press strongly against the bladder, you shall find the ball moved from the middle towards the sides. Having therefore shown the reason of the motion of any float towards the sides, the reason of the incursion of any two floating bodies will easily appear. For the rising of the water against the sides of either of them is an argument sufficient to show the pressure of the air to be there less than it is further from it, where it is not so much elevated. And therefore the reason of the motion of the other toward it will be the same as towards the side of the glass, only here from the same reason they are mutually moved towards each other whereas the other side of the glass in the former remains fixed. If also you gently fill the jar so full with water that the water is protuberant above the sides, the same piece of cork that before did hasten towards the sides does now fly from it as fast towards the middle of the superficies, the reason of which will be found no other than this that the pressure of the air is stronger against the sides of the superficies G and H than against the middle, I. For since, as I showed before, the principle of congruity would make the terminating surface spherical, and that the flattening of the surface in the middle is from the abatement of the water's pressure outwards by its contrary endeavour of its gravity. It follows that the pressure in the middle must be less than on the sides, and therefore the consecution will be the same as in the former. It is very odd to one that considers not the reason of it, to see two floating bodies of wood to approach each other as though they were endued 
with some magnetical vigour, which brings into my mind what I formerly tried with a piece of cork or such like body, which I so ordered that by putting a little stick into the same water, one part of the said cork would approach and make towards the stick, whereas another would decede and fly away. Nay, it would have a kind of verticity, so as that if the equator, as I may so speak, of the cork were placed towards the stick, if let alone, it would instantly turn its appropriate pole toward it, and then run a tilt at it. And this was done only by taking a dry cork and wetting one side of it with one small stroke, for by this means gently putting it upon the water. It would depress the superficies on every side of it that was dry, and therefore the greatest pressure of the air, it being near those sides, caused it either to chase away or else to fly off from any other floating body, whereas that side only, against which the water ascended, was thereby able to attract. It remains only that I should determine how high the water or the liquor may by this means be raised in a smaller pipe above the superficies of that without it, and at what height it may be sustained. But to determine this it will be exceeding difficult, unless I could certainly know how much of the air's pressure is taken off by the smallness of such and such a pipe, and whether it may be wholly taken off, that is, whether there can be a hole or pore so small into which air could not at all enter, though water might with its whole force, for were there such, it is manifest, that the water might rise in it to some five or six and thirty English foot high. I know not whether the capillary pipes in the bodies of small trees, which we call their microscopical pores, may not be such, and whether the congruity of the sides of the pore may not yet draw the juice even higher than the air was able by its bare pressure to raise it. For congruity is a principle that not only unites and holds a body joined to it, but which is more attracts and draws a body that is very near it and holds it above its usual height. And this is obvious even in a drop of water suspended under any similar or congruous body. For besides the ambient pressure that helps to keep it sustained, there is the congruity of the bodies that are contiguous. This is yet more evident in tenacious and glutinous bodies, such as gummous liquors, syrups, pitch, and rosin melted, and etc. Tar, turpentine, balsam, bird lime, and etc. For there it is evident that the parts of the tenacious body, as I may so call it, do stick and adhere so closely together that though drawn out into long and very slender cylinders, yet they will not easily relinquish one another. And this, though the bodies be aliquotinous fluid and in motion by one another, which to such as consider a fluid body only as its parts are in a confused irregular motion, without taking in also the congruity of the parts one among another, and in congruity to some other bodies, does appear not a little strange, so that besides the incongruity of the ambient fluid to it, we are to consider also the congruity of the parts of the contained fluid one with another. And this congruity, that I may here a little further explain it, is both a tenacious and an attractive power. For the congruity in the vibrative motions may be the cause of all kind of attraction, 
not only electrical but magnetical also, and therefore it may be also of tenacity and glutinousness. For from a perfect congruity of the motions of two distant bodies, the intermediate fluid particles are separated and driven away from between them, and thereby those congruous bodies are, by the encompassing mediums, compelled and forced nearer together. Wherefore, that attractiveness must needs be stronger, when, by an immediate contact, they are forced to be exactly the same. As I show more at large in my theory of the magnet. And this hints to me the reason of suspension of the mercury many inches, nay many feet, above the usual station of thirty inches. For the parts of quicksilver being so very similar and congruous to each other, if once united, will not easily suffer a divulsion, and the parts of water that were anyways heterogeneous, being by exantlation or rarefaction exhausted, the remaining parts being also very similar, will not easily part neither. And the parts of glass being solid, are more difficultly disjoined, and the water being somewhat similar to both, is, as it were, a medium to unite both the glass and the mercury together so that all three being united and not very dissimilar by means of this contact if care be taken that the tube in erecting be not shocked the quicksilver will remain suspended notwithstanding its contrary endeavour of gravity a great height above its ordinary station but if this immediate contact be removed either by a mere separation of them one from another by the force of a shog whereby the other becomes embodied between them and licks up from the surface some agile parts and so hurling them makes them air or else by some small heterogeneous agile part of the water or air or quicksilver which appears like a bubble and by its jumbling to and fro there is made way for the heterogeneous ether to obtrude itself between the glass and either of the fluids. The gravity of mercury precipitates it downward with very great violence, and if the vessel that holds the restagnating mercury be convenient, the mercury will for a time vibrate to and fro with very large reciprocations, and at last will remain kept up by the pressure of the external air at the height of near thirty inches and whereas it may be objected that it cannot be that the mere embodying of the ether between these bodies can be the cause since the ether having a free passage always both through the pores of the glass and through those of the fluids there is no reason why it should not make a separation at all times whilst it remains suspended, as when it is violently disjoined by a shog. To this I answer, that though the ether passes between the particles, that is, through the pores of the bodies, so as that any chasm or separation being made, it has infinite passages to admit its entry into it, yet such is the tenacity or attractive virtue of congruity, that till it be overcome by the mere strength of gravity or by a shog assisting that conatus of gravity or by an agile particle that is like a lever agitated by the ether and thereby the parts of the congruous substances are separated so far asunder that the strength of congruity is so far weakened as not to be able to reunite them the parts to be taken hold of being removed out of the attractive sphere, as I may so speak, of the congruity. Such, I say, is the tenacity of congruity that it retains and holds the almost contiguous particles of the fluid, and suffers them not to be separated, 
till by mere force that attractive or retentive faculty be overcome. But the separation being once made beyond the sphere of the attractive activity of congruity, that virtue becomes of no effect at all. But the mercury freely falls downwards till it meet with a resistance from the pressure of the ambient air, able to resist its gravity and keep it forced up in the pipe to the height of about 30 inches. Thus have I gently raised a steel pendulum by a lodestone to a great angle, till by the shaking of my hand I have chanced to make a separation between them, which is no sooner made, but as if the lodestone had retained no attractive virtue. The pendulum moves freely from it towards the other side. So vast a difference is there, between the attractive virtue of the magnet when it acts upon a contiguous and upon a disjoint body, and much more must there be between the attractive virtues of congruity upon a contiguous and disjoint body. And in truth the attractive virtue is so little upon a body disjoined that though I have with a microscope observed very diligently whether there were any extraordinary protuberance on the side of a drop of water that was exceeding near the end of a green stick, but did not touch it, I could not perceive the least, though I found that as soon as ever it touched it, the whole drop would presently unite itself with it, so that it seems an absolute contact is requisite to the exercising of the tenacious faculty of congruity. End of section 10. Observation 6. Part 2. Recording by Mike Botez.